the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the first live broadcast of the Georgine Rice Show, January 5th. 2021. Happy New Year. James Blend is engineering today's program. He's producing today's program, as is Clark Hilton. And Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, I hope you enjoyed a wonderful holiday season and a start to this new year, 2021. Later in the program, we're going to talk about what was so great about 2020. And the truth is, yes, there were a number of things that we can rejoice over in the year that was as we anticipate and look forward to the year that now is. Well, today, of course, uh, marks a uh, consequential first congressional week, and we're going to talk a lot about what's happening in Washington over the next few days because they are consequential. Uh, there are perilous moving parts this week, and we're going to be looking at them. They're going to have broad political implications for the coming years. Now, on Sunday, the 117th Congress was sworn in. Now, that's pretty remarkable in and of itself, the 117th Congress, the continuity that we have enjoyed as a constitutional republic. Uh, there are still members who honor any residual obligation to their oaths to support and defend our republic's constitution, and that's always heartening to uh, see and hear. The House will remain under the dictatorial thumb of uh, Representative Nancy Pelosi, who was reelected to her fourth term as Speaker. She retained Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, as he um, as her underbosses, if you will. And House Republican leadership remains in the competent hands of Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Minority Whip Steve Scalise. Notably, Democrats hold a smaller marginal control of the House after their majority was cut down to 222 to 211 in November with two seats still open. So that's consequential. In the Senate, the tenures of Leader Mitch McConnell and Majority Whip John Thune were reelected in November. They hang in the balance of the Georgia runoff election today. Both Republicans now holding 50 seats. If the GOP doesn't retain at least one Georgia seat, the Senate's going to be evenly divided, meaning with high votes, presumed incoming leftist uh, Vice President and Senate President Kamala Harris will provide the tiebreaker. That is consequential. Well, the runoff results may be uh, delayed of that election, given the likely prospect that the results will be contested, despite the fact that basic measures to reduce fraud are in place in Georgia. And of course, a lot of the national attention was focused there following questions about the outcome of the presidential election. Unfortunately, those measures are too little too late for the integrity of the election results in some Democrat states that allowed substantial bulk mail balloting fraud. The failures to certify who was voting, resulting in contestable November elections results. Now, most people assume this is all going to be resolved to, on Wednesday, I should say, with the congressional vote and then ultimately with the inauguration on the 20th. But there still remains a rather large question mark as to what that will mean moving forward. Well, if both Georgia seats are lost by the Republicans, the presumed incoming president, Joe Biden, will empower Senate, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and his whip, Dick Durbin, to do his bidding, which is, of course, what partisan government does, including the rapid undoing of many of Donald Trump's successful initiatives. Well, regardless, Biden is going to undo.
undo Trump executive initiatives by way of reversing or overriding those executive orders. Big changes are ahead for good or for ill. Well, the Democrats' ground game in Georgia has proven very effective and arguably President Trump contesting the national election and the vacillation of the uh, pandemic um, and the bill for relief funding undermined conservative voter turnout, and that may have an impact on the outcome of this Georgia race. Then on Wednesday, Congress meets in a joint session to count and certify electoral college votes currently standing at 306 electoral votes for Biden, 232 for Trump, the biggest post-election step for a peaceful transition of power. Well, Senator Mitch McConnell declared that the electoral college vote certification will be the most consequential I have ever cast end quote. It's uh, also going to be the most controversial as a group of Senate Republicans headed by Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. They're going to be joined by a contingent of House Republicans contesting the certification. Now, you might think this is unprecedented. Well, no, it's not. Anyway, Vice President Mike Pence said through uh, his chief of staff that he welcomes the efforts of members of the House and the Senate to use the authority they have under the law to raise objections and to bring forward evidence before Congress and the American people. There will be a two-hour debate at minimum. So buckle up. This is going to be an interesting week. We're going to try to cover as much of it as we can, but it's going to be a sprint to the finish line. Well, a political narrative is being framed around the dispute between warring camps supporting their respective presidential candidates. And you would think this was all resolved by now, but no, that's not the case. Now, if one accepts the premise of the fight to be singularly about the outcome of the November 3rd election, giving the victor the right to occupy the White House for the next four years, the terms of the debate are pretty shallow and they expose the intense motives and insatiable ambitions of those perpetuating this discussion. But instead, the terms of the debate have to reflect the actual issues at hand. And there are some legitimate issues, whether voter fraud occurred as a critical component of the national election overriding state lawmakers, existing law and the U.S. Constitution. Only then will deliberations prove worthy of the trust of Americans and of our great nation's founding. Well, on the 20th of January 2021, there's an expectation of a peaceful transition of power, characteristic of this great constitutional republic. Now, is that peaceful transfer a demand and expectation or the results of the integrity of the institution of elections in America? Well, Americans deserve the answer to that question to prove to be the latter. Well, in reality, peaceful transitions of power are a result of a trusted process, not simply an organic outcome. Well, history demonstrates the peaceful transfer of power began between bitter rivals, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Now, Adams, the incumbent, was challenged by Jefferson in 1800 in a bitter election between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. (laughs) Sort of an interesting term, is it not? Democratic Republicans, the newly formed partisan parties. Well, confusion reigned when the Electoral College tied and the outcome of the election was determined by the House of Representatives, casting 36 ballots for Thomas Jefferson to be America's third president. The process wasn't pretty, yet the process worked. My guess is this process in our day, 2021, won't be pretty, but it will probably work. Well, 220 years later, the electoral process is still in place, but the American public has witnessed drastic changes. A two-tiered system of voting was constructed in 2020. If one voted in person, greater identity verification and security measures were observed, while those casting ballots by mail had, well, to meet a lower bar. Well, as votes were being counted on November the 3rd, some states were observing extensions of the voting period past election day through court decisions, not actions by state legislative bodies as specified in the Constitution. So they were 
uh, acting outside of the prescriptions for this kind of uh, confusing circumstance. Well, while various groups are uh, engaged in trench warfare to defend or disprove the tallies of the November 3rd vote, facts are mounting that voting irregularities at best and actual criminal fraud at worst have occurred in many states. Now, will that, if should it uh, change the outcome of the election? Is there sufficient evidence for uh, that kind of a shift? Well, I'm not convinced of yet uh, of that, but here are some of the things to consider. In Nevada, at least 1,500 listed as deceased, more than 19,000 non-residents of the state, and almost 4,000 non-citizens cast ballots. Well, that's, uh, that's meaningful. In Arizona, almost 28,000 uh, duplicate ballots were counted in Maricopa County. In Wisconsin, more than 200,000 mail-in ballots were in question as clerks filled in uh, missing information or harvested ballots. In Michigan, a sworn affidavit reflects one uh, review of a sampling of some 30,000 absentee ballots revealed 2,600 of them at invalid addresses, 229 cast on behalf of dead people. In Pennsylvania, an accounting analysis revealed that 202,377 more votes were counted than were actually cast. In Georgia, there were an estimated 70,000 ineligible votes because of a lack of signature verification. Now, again, I'm not convinced that the numbers would add, would tally up to be a sufficient number to overturn the election. But these are important because there's going to be another election in two years and another presidential election in four. Well, in a 345-page Department of Justice report entitled Federal Prosecution of Election Offenses, a sweeping statement is made that uh, we can't, uh, we have to acknowledge and embrace It says this, our constitutional system of representative government only works when the worth of honest ballots is not diluted by invalid ballots procured by corruption. As the Supreme Court stated in a case upholding federal convictions for ballot box stuffing, every voter in a federal election, whether he votes for a candidate with a little chance of winning or for one with little chance of losing, has a right under the Constitution to have his vote fairly counted without its being distorted by fraudulently cast votes, end quote. Well, the truth is that voter fraud has been and remains an issue in this and previous elections, and we have to insist that legal votes alone are counted and that those committed to uh, illegal voting and corruption be prosecuted. This is a consequential week. We continue to talk about some of the events to come right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, the first live program of 2021. Glad to be with you today. Looking forward to what I described earlier in our first segment as a consequential week in Washington. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world as well, and we'll certainly focus on that in the days ahead. But this is an, a significant week in terms of uh, what's going to happen in Washington, the uh, makeup of lawmakers, the Georgia election that's going on today in that state to determine two Senate seats and, and much, much more. So we're going to focus on that today, but we'll broaden our scope in the days ahead. Well, several new members of the Senate on Sunday were sworn in for the 117th Congress. The new members include Senators Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, John Hickenlooper of uh, Colorado, Roger Marshall of Kansas, Ben Ray Luan of um, New Mexico, uh, Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, and Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming. Now, that is an incomplete list because, as I mentioned, there's a runoff in Georgia, and two Senate seats will be filled from that election. Now, given the fact that um, this is a very high count a number of ballots that have been ca- uh, cast and have to be counted, we're not clear whether or not we're going to have the outcome by this evening, but more likely tomorrow morning. But that will certainly have a major impact on the makeup of the Senate, and we'll talk more about that 
in just a few moments. Well, Tuberville de- uh, defeated former Senator Doug Jones, a Democrat, while Hickenlooper defeated former Senator Cory Gardner, a Republican from Colorado. Marshall succeeded former Senator Pat Roberts. Haggerty succeeded former Senator Lamar Alexander. And Loomis succeeded former Senator Mike Enzi. To say the 117th Congress convenes at a challenging time would indeed be an understatement. That's a quote from Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in a statement after the senators were sworn into office. He went on to say, from political division to a deadly pandemic to adversaries around the world, the hurdles before us are many and they are serious. But there's also plenty of reason for hope, McConnell added, saying that optimism is one of our country's most distinctive calling cards since our very earliest days. And with safe and effective vaccines rolling out across our nation every day, I'd say 2021 looks bright already. I think it's rather interesting that he points out that optimism is one of our country's most distinctive calling cards since our very earliest days. And I question whether or not that is still the case. Is optimism one of our nation's uh, most enduring calling cards? And does it endure into the year 2021 with our political divisions and rancor? He went on to say, um, uh, we uh, gavel in today. Like 116 prior Senates having gaveled in before us with plenty of disagreements and policy differences among our ranks, but all, all swearing the same oath. He also said in his statement on Sunday on the floor, Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are embroiled in a contested runoff election for their seats. Perdue is facing off against Democrat John Ossoff, and Loeffler is being challenged by Democratic candidate Raphael Warnock. Well, the House and Senate opened at noon as required by law with strict COVID-19 protocols. Elbow bumps replaced handshakes as the senators uh, took the oath of office. Fewer family members than usual joined lawmakers in the Capitol. A dozen Republicans bound for the new Senate, led by Senators uh, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, and even more in the House, have pledged to challenge the electoral vote on Wednesday during the joint session of Congress. And again, we'll talk more about what to expect in all of that as time permits. Well, again, speaking of Georgia, mercifully for every one of Georgia's nearly 10 million residents, the state's two Senate runoff elections finally take place today. Nearly $500 million have been spent since Election Day, and that's since Election Day. That doesn't count what was spent up to Election Day when the original election that now required a runoff took place. And the nonstop ads and phone calls are grading. You might recall some of the big elections in our states, Oregon and Washington, and how tiresome they can become. Now think about it. These folks had to endure the presidential election and all the campaigning that led up to that. And then to add to that an additional, what, a couple of months of campaigning for these uh, Senate runoffs. Georgia will be glad for today, uh, if only to put an end to the campaigning that has been relentless there for months. Republican Senator uh, David Perdue faces Democrat challenger John Ossoff. GOP Senator uh, Kelly Loeffler, meanwhile, is in a matchup with Raphael Warnock, the radical pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the Atlanta congregation once pastored by Martin Luther King Jr. To help us um, to help their case uh, with aggrieved Georgia supporters, the president, Donald Trump, both Purdue and Loeffler, they've encouraged their Republican Senate colleagues to oppose certification of the Electoral College vote on Wednesday. Loeffler explicitly announced on Monday that she will join her colleagues, at least for the short term. We don't know if she'll retain that seat. Trump himself, of course, spent a large portion of his stump speech on Monday on that very subject. Well, the good news for Republicans is that 
Uh, the Peach State has um, been red for more than two decades. The bad news for Republicans is that it's trending blue. For one thing, Georgia's Republican legislature made a Faustian bargain with the devil in the form of Hollywood, offering huge tax breaks for the production of movies and TV shows in hopes of generating an economic boon. Georgia is indeed now the Hollywood of the South, and everything from Netflix shows to Marvel movies are filmed and produced in that state. Well, guess what? Hollywood doesn't vote Republican. In fact, the glitterati there even used its uh, mere presence as a political bludgeon, if you will, extending boycott threats over pro-life legislation. Well, more importantly, the state's Democratic uh, Democrats rather have mobilized to register voters. Mark Alexander asked the big question, given the state uh, that the state's leading leftist protagonist, Stacey Abrams, has registered more than 115,000 additional Democrat voters since November in a state where even Republican Governor Brian Kemp is not backing Trump's election challenge. Can either GOP Senate candidates win? Well, according to Alexander, Democrats are once again following the model perfected by Barack Obama and his former chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who declared, you don't ever want a good crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. Leftists have masterfully used the uh, uh, pandemic as national justification for things one could not have imagined doing before and changing the ground game. They've registered tens of millions of new voters who are not politically informed or engaged by using the loosest criterion for identification. Democrats chose um, those who would not otherwise show up at a polling place in states that still require an ID and then ensure that they receive absentee or bulk mail ballots. Uh, This accounts for the enormous surge in votes in November and the vast majority of those mail ballots came from Democrats. So what's the problem with mail-in ballots, particularly those bulk mail to all registered registered voters in some states. Well, Alexander notes that beyond the loose identification requirements for voters in many states, the authorization of those ballots is done by signature comparison, authentications being verified by rooms full of bureaucrats and hourly contract workers who have only the most tangential instruction on signature verification and very limited time. More than three million Georgians cast ballots before today's official election, and it's almost certain that Republicans turning out today face a steep deficit. Purdue bested Ossoff by a little more than 100,000 votes in November while failing to crack the necessary 50 percent. The margin was roughly the same for Republicans versus Democrats in the Loeffler contest, though it was split among 20 candidates. So they may be a very different outcome there. Again, Stacey Abrams has registered more than 100,000 voters since Election Day. Now, remember what's at stake. President Trump certainly does, telling a rally in the North Georgia town of Dalton that if both Democrats win, handing them control of the Senate, it would give them the power to ram through every diluted piece of left-wing legislation they've ever wanted, uh, that they've ever dreamed of, end quote. He added, your religious liberty will be gone, your Second Amendment will be gone, your borders and great new wall will be gone, your police departments will be gone as you know them, and your life savings will be gone, end quote. Well, the moment isn't uh, lost on Joe Biden either. He told a rally in Atlanta uh, that it's not, uh, rather that it's a new year and tomorrow can be a new day for Atlanta, for Georgia, and for America. Unlike any time in my career, one state, one state, he said, can chart the course, not just for the four years, but for the next generation. So there's a lot at stake in Georgia. And again, the expectation is we won't know the outcome, most likely before tomorrow. And uh, the way the the, uh, ballots are uh, counted, most Republicans will be voting in person. Most Democrats will be voting by mail-in ballots. 
the early numbers might reflect one outcome, while the later numbers might flip that rather dramatically. We'll talk a bit more about that in just a few moments as well. Hey, you're listening to the first live broadcast of the Georgine Rice Show in 2021. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the first live broadcast of the Georgine Rice Show 2021. As I mentioned earlier in the program, this is a very consequential first congressional week, and we're winding our way through some of the events that you can anticipate in the days ahead. Of course, the Electoral College vote is expected tomorrow. We've had senators sworn in uh, over the weekend and much more between now and then. So we'll talk a bit about that for this 117th Congress. Well, Georgia, the Senate runoff for the winners may not be known, as I mentioned tonight. It uh, could be deja vu in Georgia. The state on Tuesday is holding the twin Senate runoff elections. It's going to determine if the Republicans keep their majority in the chamber or if the Democrats control both houses of Congress as well as the White House. Well, two months after the presidential election results in Georgia and a handful of other key battleground states went into overtime, but the race is not called in some cases until four days after Election Day. There's a good chance it could happen again in the runoff contest. So. Beware. We might not knew, know rather who won these races on Tuesday night. It could be a few days after that until all the votes are counted. Well, in the general election, 4.9 million people cast ballots, shattering the Peach State's previous turnout record. You fast forward two months and the state's breaking a turnout record for turnout contests or rather runoff contests again. More than three million people or two-fifths, 40% of the state's registered voters have already cast a ballot in the runoffs, either through early in-person voting or by absentee ballot. And anywhere from 800,000 to possibly over a million people will vote on election day today. The heavy turnout both before the election day is once again forming a perfect storm that could put Americans back in a familiar place. Not knowing when they go to sleep on Tuesday night, whether Republican Senator uh, David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler won re-election or if Democrat challengers John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock defeated the GOP incumbents. Well, the polls in Georgia are scheduled to close at 7 o'clock p.m. Of course, that's Eastern time on Election Day. And that's when ballot counting is allowed to begin there. Absentee ballots have to be received by the poll closing time to be counted. There is an exception for military and overseas ballots. If they're postmarked by Tuesday and received by Friday, they will be counted. And absentee voters have until Friday to fix problems with their ballots so their votes can be counted. President Trump was uh, ahead of Biden by roughly 100,000 votes in Georgia the morning after the November election. But as more votes were counted, the president's lead deteriorated and Biden eventually won the state by nearly 12,000 votes, a margin that was upheld in two ensuing recounts and certified by the state. Now, Purdue and Loeffler could also jump out in the early lead on Tuesday night for a couple of reasons. Republican areas of the state often report their results first, and Republican voters were more likely to vote on Election Day or at early in-person polling stations. Those votes are often counted first by many Georgia counties. So that will give you the early numbers. Heavily Democratic counties, including in Atlanta and surrounding inner suburbs, have traditionally seen slower in-vote counting and election results. And since more Democrats than Republicans were expected to vote by absentee ballot, late return ballots, which uh, would be counted after in-person and election day votes, would likely favor Ossoff and Warnock. Now, one more thing to remember, if the final margin in either of the contests are within 0.5 percent of the vote, the losing candidate under Georgia law has the right to ask for a recount. So the election may not be over as soon as one might hope. 
Well, President Trump is asking Georgia's Secretary of State to find votes to find votes during a Saturday phone call, insisting he won. Well, the president insisted he won the state in the 2020 election during a weekend phone call with the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and reportedly urged him to find enough votes to reverse the state's results. Well, the Washington Post, who's no friend of Donald Trump, said it obtained audio of the phone call, which it published online on Sunday. Well, during that call, the president reportedly says, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. Well, Georgia's certified election results show that Trump's Democratic opponent, Joe Biden, won the state's November 3rd election by 11,779 votes. Well, the president confirmed Sunday morning that he had spoken with Raffensperger on Saturday about voter fraud in Georgia. He was unwilling or unable to answer questions such as the ballots under the table scam, ballot destruction, out-of-state voters, dead voters, and more, the president tweeted He has no clue, referring to Raffensperger. Meanwhile, Raffensperger replied on Sunday morning, stating, Respectfully, President Trump, what you're saying is not true. The truth will come out. Well, in other developments, President Trump and House Republicans held a call to discuss the rejection of the Electoral College. We'll see that played out tomorrow. And what to expect when Congress meets on Wednesday to count the electoral votes? Well, the final stage in the selection of an American president comes at 1 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday, January the 6th. That's tomorrow. Well, under the conditions of the 12th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, both the House and the Senate will meet at 1 p.m. in a joint session of Congress in the House chamber. Vice President Mike Pence, in his capacity as president of the Senate, presides. But there has been several instances where the president pro tempore of the Senate, the most senior member of the majority party, presides in place of the vice president. This would be Senator Chuck Grassley. Well, there is some debate as to the role of the vice president at this stage. Some believe it's ceremonial. The lawsuit that was filed by Representative Louis Gohmert of Texas, tossed out by a court, uh, the federal judge appointed by President Trump, pushed for the vice president to have a more powerful role over the session and the adjudication of electoral votes sent in from the states. Well, they tossed that out. So the vice president's role, one might argue, remains at least to, to some degree in question. In other developments, GOP senators want an election commission similar to the one that decided the disputed 1876 race. Time permits, I'll tell you all about that. And an appeals court has upheld the dismissal of uh, Louis Gohmert's lawsuit challenging the 2020 election results. GOP senators plan to demand an emergency audit. And Congress is set to certify the Electoral College results despite GOP objections. Mitch McConnell says the Electoral College certification will be his most consequential vote ever. Meanwhile, Senator Tom Cotton, who's seen as a rising star in the Republican Party and a a major ally of President Trump, said that he's going to he will not rather he will not oppose the counting of certified electoral votes during a joint session of Congress tomorrow to confirm Joe Biden's election victory. At least a dozen Republican senators are expected to challenge that victory. Eleven latest count, and it may be as many as 18. Senator Josh Hawley was the first Republican to announce plans to object to the certification. He said last week that he cannot vote to certify without raising the fact that some states, particularly Pennsylvania, fail to follow their own state election laws. Senator Ted Cruz said that he will lead an objection unless there's an emergency 10-day audit of the results of the Electoral Commission. The objections will force votes in both the House and the Senate, but none are expected to prevail. Senator Cotton joined Republican Senators Ben Sass, Roy Blunt, Mitt Romney, who have spoken out against the decision to challenge. The Wall Street Journal, citing an unnamed source, reported that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been telling colleagues that it was a bad idea 
to object to the results. You might recall under the Bush administration, Dianne Feinstein objected to the outcome of the Electoral College. Again, not unprecedented, but it's interesting, depending on which party you belong to and whose uh, horse is um, in the race, uh, it becomes an outrage that there's a challenge of any kind, but it's actually not uncommon. Rodney Davis slammed Democrats over the shameful plexiglass structure that was provided to protect Pelosi votes when she was up for re-election as Speaker of the House. One member who had announced she had COVID-19 was allowed to return to the House to cast her vote. They put up plexiglass to protect her. Again, political ideology has some impact on uh, COVID-19, I'm learning. A New York Democrats uh, bill allowing the governor to detain individuals uh, dangerous to public health has sparked a backlash. And early voting in the Peach State surpasses $3 million ahead of the runoff election today. Oil prices edge lower ahead of the OPEC meeting that includes output level discussions. And investors are bullish on stocks, hoping for a brighter 2021. I think we're all hoping for that. The New York City landlord is facing his own eviction as what he refers to as deadbeat tenants refuse to pay their rent and are not required to do so. The House Democrats' opening prayer ends with, Amen. And a woman? Well, amen, of course, is Latin for so be it. Representative Guy uh, Reschenthaler tweeted, um, he's a Pennsylvania Republican, it's not a gendered word. Unfortunately, facts are irrelevant to progressives. Unbelievable. (laughs) Jeff Blahar points out, I know it's not the most important issue in the world right now, but I do want to point out that saying a woman instead of amen is intensely stupid, displays a stunning ignorance of etymology, and if you do so, then your woman, your woman tally uh, deficient. Denny Burke points out that I don't know the identity of the man praying. I don't know that he prays to all. I do know that he prays to all monotheistic gods as if they are all the true God. This may be prayer, but it's not a Christian one. And then he quotes Isaiah 45, 5, in which the Lord himself says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the first live broadcast of The Georgine Rice Show of 2021. Hope you have a great holiday season and looking forward to a great new year. Not because of what's happening in Washington or in Salem or, or in Olympia, for that matter, but because we know who's on the throne. And I'm casting my ballot with him. Well, turning our attention back to what's happening in Washington, a Democrat with COVID voted on the House floor to give Nancy Pelosi power. Wisconsin Representative Gwen Moore claims she was cleared, but a reporter for The Hill says Moore admits she didn't receive a negative test. Meanwhile, Pelosi won back her speaker's position by a mere two votes, which explains why this Wisconsin representative was so important, diseased and plagued as she may have been to arrive at the Capitol. Well, scientists have identified a more infectious new COVID-19 strain in the United Kingdom and now one case in Colorado. Researchers in the UK estimate that the variant could be as much as 70 percent more transmissible than more established strains. Some of the changes are on the spike protein on the surface of the virus, potentially enabling it to more easily cling to and enter human cells. Scientists don't believe it is um, Uh, any more deadly, however. Meanwhile, the situation in Southern California grows more dire. According to the story, as of Sunday, more than 16,840 people were hospitalized with confirmed COVID-19 infections, more than double the previous uh, peak reached in July. And a state model that uses current data to forecast future trends shows the number could reach 75,000 by mid-January. 
More than 3,610 COVID-19 patients were in intensive care units, all of Southern California and 12 counties San Joaquin Valley uh, to the north have exhausted their regular ICU capacity and some hospitals have begun using surge space. Overall, the state's ICU capacity uh, was just 2.1% on Sunday. Well, some have expressed concern that the vaccine is the product of abortion. Well, one story in the National Review, and I'm going to quote from it, uh, says this. It explains it was HEK293 kidney cells that were used. These are believed to have been originated with an abortion. An abortion. Note the use of the singular. HEK293 uh, are not continuously gathered as more abortions are performed. They were originally gleaned from a 1973 procedure in the Netherlands and have since been reproduced in labs for various research purposes. Dr. Lee explained in an interview with National Review that a fetal cell line is not the same as fetal tissue. The story also notes that these uh, uh, these vaccines have been held to to the same Food and Drug Administration standards as any other vaccine. The new mRNA-based vaccine does nothing to change your DNA, as some skeptics have supposed, and they have proven just as effective among the elderly and infirm as among the young and healthy. The Vatican gave Catholics the go-ahead to take the vaccine. So a rather interesting element um, and questions that have been raised as a result. Californians are fleeing to Mexico to avoid lockdowns. They're drawn partly by the prospect of bringing a little normalcy to their lives in a place where coronavirus restrictions have been more relaxed than at home, even as cases of COVID-19 shatter records. Well, some of them are staying at least for a while and taking advantage of the six-month tourist visa that Americans are granted on arrival. Well, as of Monday, fewer than five million have been vaccinated so far, by the way. Well, Manhattan Beach in California plans to remove outdoor seating. They announced on Saturday there will be no sitting in public. Not to be outdone, New York is flirting with a bill that could allow the governor to remove or detain people suspected of having COVID-19. You just have to be suspected of having it and you could be detained in New York. The FAA clearance brings the U.S. the U.S. closer to drone delivery packages. I have to admit, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Things hovering overhead. I have um, lots of hummingbirds in my neighborhood. I enjoy hearing the kind of the feathery sound of their flapping very quick wings. Well, it reminds me very much of a uh, of a well, I don't know these um, drones, uh, and to you know be out in your front yard and hear something. Coming down overhead, I'm not sure what I think about that. Anyway, allowing small drones to fly over people at night, uh, the new rules will require remote identification of drones, which provide ID of the drones in flight, and the location of their control stations to officials, not to you and me, but to officials. This will in part help to reduce the risk of drone interference with other aircraft as well as things on the ground. Again, does the public have a say in all of this? We'll have to wait and see. Well, a Chinese billionaire critical of Chinese policy has, not surprisingly, vanished. Speculation has swirled around Chinese billionaire Jack Ma's whereabouts after reports surfaced that the high-profile businessman has not made a public appearance in more than two months. The Alibaba founder also failed to appear as scheduled in the final episode of his own talent show, Africa's Business Heroes. Mike Pence rightly removed himself from President Trump's Electoral College hustle, and Congress overrode the president's defense authorization bill veto. 
Democratic uh, candidates Warnock and Ossoff, they've leveled misleading claims that GOP opponent Loeffler, Senator Loeffler, is campaigning with a Klansman. If you really want to stick it to him, you just you say something like that, whether or not it's supportable. A Hunter Biden email associate is on the Department of Justice transition team. And the Census Bureau missed the year-end deadline for delivering uh, numbers for House seats, redistricting. The U.S. voted against the U.N. budget uh, over an anti-Israel measure and its lack of action on Iran. And Obamacare, athletes, gay rights, and religion are among the biggest Supreme Court cases of 2021. The proposed House rule will strike non-inclusive words. For example, Nancy Pelosi just proposed banning gendered terms like might want to make sure there are no children present because these are so offensive. I don't want them repeating them back and then you blaming me for them using these kinds of um, offensive words. Father, mother, son, and daughter. Again, I think the FCC will allow me to say them without uh, any kind of fine at, at this point, but in the House, not, not, uh, not acceptable. Uh, interestingly, uh, Nancy Pelosi has mother and grandmother in her Twitter bio. That's probably going to have to be changed now. Well, the New York Times helped a teenager cancel a classmate with a four-year-old video that included a racial slur. So you've got a teenager who has video from four years ago, which means the person that the um, tape uh, features was probably not a teenager at the time the video was taken to help cancel and destroy that individual's lives. Yeah, that's what we wanted encourage young people to do. Luke Letlow, the 41-year-old congressman-elect, has died from COVID complications. I guess someone will have to be appointed to take his seat. And Novavax has started a late-stage trial of a vaccine here in the United States, while the UK has authorized an Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. China's ally, the World Health Organization, has pledged not to find a guilty party in its COVID probe. No surprise there. And in the midst of a global pandemic, abortion leads 2020 as the number one cause of death, with 42.7 million killed. Perhaps social distancing should be mandated. The L.A. Sheriff Super Spreader Task Force, yes, that's actually a thing, has detained some 900 during party busts. And New Mexico fined two churches $10,000 each for Christmas Eve services. Well, the totalitarian mob has come for a Princeton professor over a harmless uh, Twitter poll question. Now, mind you, it was a question, not a statement, a simple question. It's not just what you say, but what you question will now get you into trouble. A University of Chicago professor has been pilloried for criticizing no white men hiring rules. And a Chicago teachers union leader pushed for schools to remain closed while sitting by a pool in Puerto Rico. I mean, you know, if you want to have a clear head and really think through what's in the best interest of children around your district, I guess that's the best way to do it. Well, Harvard is calling uh, women birthing people. Again, the language is shifting, birthing people. They did so according to those super smart folks who tell us so many things we need to know to include those who identify as non-binary or transgender because not all who give birth identify as women or girls. Of course, they are actually women or girls because they couldn't give birth otherwise, but they choose to ignore that fact and now they want you to ignore it as well. Julian Assange's extradition to the United States has been denied by a British judge. And ICE deported more than 185,000 illegal aliens and 4,200 gang members in 2020. By the way, ICE says arrestees had an average of four criminal convictions or charges each. The U.S. is facing another potential border crisis as Biden takes office in just a few days. And Iran says it plans to increase the enrichment of uranium. 
President Trump has extended the suspension of work visas through March, and mom-and-pop landlords are struggling through the eviction freeze. Britain's trade agreement with the European Union has entered legal force. And Portland's mayor and Antifa enabler Ted Wheeler is now asking for federal and state help against what he refers to now as radical Antifa. An emancipation memorial honoring freed slaves in Boston has been officially removed. I guess we're supposed to be offended by the emancipation now. Shooting its um, shootings rather in New York City doubled in 2020, and while Chicago ended 2020 with 769 homicides. My understanding is this is the most violence we've seen in the country since the Civil War. In 2020, the FBI saw the largest yearly increase in background checks in 20 years, and a Louisville officer who fatally shot Breonna Taylor will be fired. Massachusetts is allowing abortions without parental consent, codifying Roe v. Wade. Meanwhile, an Ohio governor has signed a bill requiring cremation or burial of aborted babies. Finally, Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home was vandalized on New Year's Day. And Dr. Anthony Fauci admits, well, he fudged the truth just a bit. And Trump ends Obama's 12-year run as the most admired man. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour, but we will be back with more on the first live broadcast of The Georgine Rice Show of 2021. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, our first live broadcast of 2021. By the way, James Blend, he's producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today is, uh, I should say, this week is consequential. Uh, This first week of uh, Congress, and as you probably know by now, tomorrow, Congress will sit in a joint session to determine the outcome of the election by reviewing the Electoral College. We'll talk more about that, as well as other events uh, leading up to uh, Inauguration Day on the 20th of this month. Now, today we're focusing primarily on what's happening in Washington, because, again, this is The opening of the 117th Congress, we've got a number of major uh, issues that are approaching. We've got the election in Georgia and so on, but we'll broaden our uh, view in the days ahead. But did want to try to bring you up to date on what's happening in these first few days uh, in Washington. Again, taking a look at some of the uh, headlines of the last few days, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler plans to object to the certification of at least one presidential election result. And of course, uh, the Georgia senator is on the ballot in today's runoff. Well, the Georgia Republican is going to object to certifying the results of at least one state on Wednesday. The joint session of Congress to certify the Electoral College results is set to uh, occur just a day after today's Senate runoff election. She faces Democrat Raphael Warnock. And Senator David uh, Perdue is up against Democrat John Ossoff. Well, elections are the bedrock of our democracy, and the American people deserve to be 100% confident in our election systems and its outcomes. But right now, she said, tens of millions of Americans have real concerns about the way in which the November presidential election was conducted, and I share their concerns. She was speaking and making a statement on Fox News earlier today. She went on to say the American people deserve a platform in Congress permitted under the Constitution to have election issues presented so that they can be addressed. That's why on January 6th, I uh, will vote to give President Trump and the American people the fair hearing they deserve and support the objection of the Electoral College certification process. Well, a source familiar with her uh, thinking says that she'll likely object to the certification of Georgia's presidential election results and uh, left the possibility open that she could object to others as well. By the way, I'll uh, get into it a bit more later, but there is a contingent of 
uh, Georgia lawmakers, uh, members of the legislature who are also asking for a delay in the certification in that state. So she does not stand alone. In other developments, a Cruz-led, a Senator Cruz-led group plans to object to the certification of election results in at least one state and push electoral commission for an electoral commission. And GOP senators are still discussing which states, if any, they're going to object to during the election certification tomorrow, 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. House Republicans are pressuring Senate GOP to object to the electoral college certification in at least three states. Again, the decision pending. And Mitch McConnell says the electoral college certification will be his most consequential vote ever. Well, the White House is responding to a report suggesting President Trump will head to Scotland before the inauguration. Well, the White House downplayed the report uh, late Monday that suggested President Trump may be planning a trip to Scotland the day before the inauguration. Scotland's Sunday Post, citing unnamed sources at the country's Prestwick Airport, reported the U.S. military surveillance planes have been in place there for a week. Well, the sources told the paper that there has also been a booking of an American military version of the Boeing 757 on January 19th. Well, a source told the paper that the plane is um, the one normally used by the vice president, but often used by the first lady. Trump owns a luxury resort in Scotland called Trump Turnberry. Judd Deere, who's the deputy White House press secretary, in a statement said anonymous sources who claim to know what the president is or is not considering have no idea. When President Trump has an announcement about his plans on the 20th of January, he'll let you know. And other developments, Biden's inauguration will include a presidential escort and virtual parade across America, as well as a coronavirus victims vigil at Lincoln Memorial. President Trump, by the way, and this is somewhat speculative because I've heard he's going to do it and not so sure he's going to do it. He plans to outshine Biden on Inauguration Day with an event of his own. We'll keep you posted on whether or not that is the case. I suppose you can't be in Scotland and hold that event. A political reporter told journalists to call GOPers who object to Biden's win as radicals and extremists. And Trump says he'll campaign against Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, warning a Democrat Senate victory there would lead to socialism. Representative Chip Roy says if Democrats control the Senate, the country will face full-scale hot conflict. Not quite sure what all he meant by that, but that's the quote. The New York Stock Exchange has reversed course. They will not delist Chinese telecoms. And Google workers formed a union with 226 card-carrying members. The Amazon Berkshire J.P. Morgan healthcare venture, Haven, is closing in February. And House Democrats are changing the rules to clear the way for a Green New Deal, according to top Republicans, in a warning. And raising federal minimum wage amid a coronavirus pandemic will be a disaster for U.S. business, Andy Putzer points out, and also warns. Georgia voters have headed to the polls. If Georgians uh, vote for Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff, they will allow Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to do exactly what he told us he would do, win Georgia and change America. What exactly is Schumer's idea of changing America? The Green New Deal, Washington, D.C. statehood, government-run health care, stacking the Supreme Court with liberal justices, abolishing longstanding Senate procedures and rules, and more. Biden's closing argument for Warnock and Ossoff, you'll get more stimulus money. Well, George Will is among speakers deemed too controversial for Princeton University. The writer in the National Review article points out that several months ago, I submitted a list of potential speakers to the American Whig 
Cleosophic Society Speakers Council. They flagged a number of my speakers as controversial and decided to put them to a vote before the group's Student Governing Council in accordance with procedures laid out to prevent a repeat of a 2018 disinvitation incident. My provocative speakers included Washington Post columnist and Pulitzer Prize winner and Princeton alumnus George Will and Naomi Rao, a former law professor and currently a circuit court judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Predictably, none on the left-leaning parties' choices, including extreme progressives such as bell hooks and provocateurs such as Jamil Bowie, were deemed controversial enough for further review. Dr. Albert Moeller points out on Twitter that Princeton students disallow invitations to George Will and a sitting federal judge. Stop telling us that the elite universities are not as radical and their students even more radical as their own headlines seem to indicate. Well, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is waging war on women by eliminating mother, so says Abigail Schreier. On Sunday, she points out Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Democratic majority proposed to eliminate father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, and all other language deemed insufficiently gender inclusive from House rules. They would be replaced with terms like parent, child, sibling, parent, sibling, and so on. Mother, among the most important concepts in human life, would be erased from the lexicon of the U.S. House of Representatives, It's important to recognize how radical this actually is. Yet Pelosi's own Twitter bio has the words mother, grandmother in her personal identity. Well, Democrats and their allies in the press spent the last four years accusing President Trump of being soft on Russia. And worse, some call the president a Russian asset, a traitor, Putin's patsy and much, much more. It was all BS because behind the rhetoric was the stark reality that Trump and his administration have actually been tougher on Russia than many of his predecessors. Now, with the president on his way out, one lone voice in the anti-Trump press, CNN specifically, has spoken the truth out loud. The media admitting Trump was tough on Russia. By the way, I don't typically use the initials B or S put together. I was quoting. Forgive me. Lockdowns continue to suffocate small business. No big news there. From March the 1st through August the 31st, nearly 100,000 businesses listed on Yelp have closed permanently due to the pandemic, an average of more than 500 a day. Later, my favorite Italian restaurant, Trattoria Mali of Santa Barbara, California, one columnist writes, is one such establishment. Mali is an Ethiopian immigrant who invested everything she had in a restaurant. She never made a fortune, but I've never seen anyone happier running a restaurant or better at it. Her employees, many of whom are also immigrants, make a good living. Santa Barbara's mild climate has allowed her business to survive on outdoor dining alone. That is, until a couple of weeks ago, when despite its limited health risks, Outdoor dining was also banned by Governor Gavin Newsom. Molly called me in tears asking for advice. Her restaurant was on the brink and her employees were about to go jobless, unable to feed their families or pay their rents. This has been a very costly pandemic. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break. We'll continue to take a look at the day's news and to anticipate tomorrow's vote on the Electoral College. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the first live broadcast of the Georgine Rice Show 2021. We're uh, taking a look at some of the day's headlines. We're also going to look at what's going to happen in Washington tomorrow when the joint session of Congress sits to evaluate the Electoral College and certify the outcome or not, as the case may be. 
Well, the Entertainment Industry Union begs for productions to shut down. SAG and AFTRA, they're representing about 160,000 workers, want the filming in California to stop. You might recall weeks ago, the restaurant owner who was shut down while production continued, and they set up a little area for uh, those who were working to eat while he couldn't feed his family. One upping Biden, Kamala Harris' story about demanding civil rights as a toddler was apparently lifted from a 1965 MLK Jr. interview. Demanding civil rights as a toddler. That's impressive, even if it's not true. Well, the British prime minister has imposed another national lockdown on England. And nearly one million excess deaths, they're calling them excess deaths, are expected over the next 15 years from the pandemic rise in unemployment. Well, China is calling the Biden administration a new window of hope for U.S. relations because they'll be unabated in their attempt to glean everything they can, or steal might be a better word, of U.S. technology and intellectual property. And they screamed threats, vandalized, and tried to pound open our door. That's according to Senator Hawley. He was away, and Antifa terrorized his family, his wife and infant daughter. Speaking of which, D.C. mayor is calling the National Guard for Trump supporters. He refused to do so with the BLM and Antifa riots, but uh, the event that's supposed to be taking place uh, in support of the president, you got to have the uh, National Guard available. And in the theater of the absurd, this uh, just in, trans women retain their athletic edge after a year of hormone therapy, according to a recent study. For those who suggest that there's a level playing field, that is not the case. That is, of course, if you regard science. On this day in history, 1925, Democrat Nellie Taylor Ross of Wyoming takes office as America's first female governor, succeeding her late husband, William, following a special election. 1933, construction begins on the Golden Gate Bridge. 1943, educator and scientist George Washington Carver dies in Tuskegee, Alabama, at about 80 years old. And on this day in history, 1957, President Dwight D. Eisenhower proposes assistance to countries to help them resist communist aggression in what became known as the Eisenhower Doctrine. My, how things have changed, have they not? Well, Congress is bracing for a dramatic end to the disputed 2020 election. The House and the Senate are poised to debate a presidential election outcome for only the third time since 1887 when Congress passed the Electoral Count Act. Well, the prospect comes with litigation that seeks to force the hand of Vice President Mike Pence ahead of the January 6th joint session of Congress to finalize the election. By the way, a federal judge nixed that. It also comes just one week from the day that is supposed to cap off the controversial election 2020, although it's highly improbable the outcome will change and that President Donald Trump will prevail against his Democratic challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden. Senator Josh Hawley announced Wednesday that uh, this is last Wednesday, rather, that he will object to the counting of the electoral votes from certain states. His move ensures that House objections led by Representative Mo Brooks and others will be debated separately in the House and the Senate. At the same time, Representative Louis Gohmert from Texas and 11 Republican alternative electors from Arizona sued over the issue in the U.S. District Court for Eastern District of Texas. The suit calls for the vice president in his role as president of the Senate and presiding officer of the joint session to reject electoral college votes from states where voter fraud or irregularities are suspected. And it goes on from there. Well, on December 14th, uh, Biden won 306 votes in the Electoral College and Trump 
232. A total of 270 is needed to win the presidency. Trump hasn't conceded the election, alleging uh, irregularities. Seven states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, they assembled an alternative set of Trump electors that same day. The Electoral College Act in 1887 requires a joint session of Congress to count the Electoral College votes from each state and stipulates that the vice president, as presiding officer, will certify those results. However, if an objection to the count is declared in writing by a House member and signed by a at least one senator, the joint session would be required to suspend um, and uh, both the House and Senate would be required to debate the objection for two hours. The chamber would vote on the lawmaker's objection before reconvening in the joint session. That will most assuredly happen tomorrow. Well, the Gohmert-led lawsuit argued in part that the 1887 law is unconstitutional, contending that the Constitution grants the vice president the exclusive authority and sole discretion in determining which electoral votes to count. The lawsuit argued that legitimizing electoral votes would be a violation of the Constitution's electoral clause, rather, and limit or eliminate the vice president's 12th Amendment authority to determine which states of electors should be counted. Well, Article 2 of the Constitution and the 12th Amendment say the president of the Senate, in this case Pence, shall, in the presence of the Senate and House, open all the certificates and the votes shall uh, shall then be counted. For the sake of the future of our republic, come January 6th, Vice President Pence must be authorized to uphold the legal votes of millions of Americans and preserve our nation's greatest experiment in self-government, Gohmert said in his public statement. Well, Pence declined to sign on to that lawsuit to push um, to use his position to reject certain electors, according to the lawsuit. Well, last Tuesday, the U.S. District Court Judge Jeremy Kernoodle call for Pence to provide a response to the lawsuit and for Gohmert to issue a reply to Pence by 9 a.m. the first of this month. Well, Gohmert asked the judge for an expedited decision by the 4th to allow for an appeal before Congress convenes in the joint session tomorrow. Uh, The truth is that no court so far has had the morality or courage to allow evidence of fraud to be introduced in front of it, Gohmert said. Well, it is a um, ongoing back-and-forth decision about what will happen next. Um, since the uh, passage in 1887 of, of this particular uh, law, only two objections to an electoral college vote managed to gain the support of a member of the House and the Senate facing a debate in both chambers. The joint session coming up Wednesday will make the first uh, such debate when the House and the Senate are controlled by different parties. Well, 2005, most recently, that was January 6th, Democrats alleged Uh, Voting irregularities in Ohio after President George W. Bush won re-election in the 2004 election over his Democratic challenger, Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts. Then Representative Stephanie Tubbs Jones, a Democrat from Ohio, and then Senator Barbara Boxer objected in writing to Ohio's electoral college votes for Bush. Boxer called her 2005 objection her proudest moment on the U.S. Senate floor. Our intent was not to overturn the election in any way, she said. Our intent was to focus on voter suppression in Ohio. Both chambers withdrew to consider the objection, and then, in separate votes, the House and Senate each rejected the objection. The Senate voted 74 to 1 against the challenge, the House 267 to 31. At the time, Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate. Then House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi praised the objection. So again, this is not unprecedented. You'll hear that word bandied about. You'll also suggest, hear suggestions that to even raise objections is somehow 
um, outside of what should be acceptable. Then there was 1968. What happened then? Well, in the 1968 presidential election, Republican Richard Nixon defeated Democrat Hubert Humphrey and independent George Wallace, a rare third party candidate, to win um, some electoral votes. On the 6th, back in 1969, then-Representative James O'Hara, a Democrat from Michigan, and then-Senator Edmund Muskie, a Democrat from Maine, objected in writing to counting the vote of a faithless elector from North Carolina who voted for Wallace even though Nixon had won the state. The Senate voted 58 to 33 against the objection, the House 228 to 70. At the time, Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate. When the joint session resumed, the challenged electoral vote was counted for Wallace, a former Democrat who won a total of 46 electoral votes after carrying five states. And several other joint sessions to count electoral votes, including a January of 2017, House members made objections but failed to get a senator to response. So, Uh, to a sponsor, rather. So this is not unprecedented. It has happened before, and the process will be carried out as it has in the two previous incidents that I mentioned. And then, of course, there have been other attempts where you didn't have both a member of the House and the Senate to sign on, which is required uh, for this debate to be be called upon. So that's what we're going to see tomorrow. And again, while the word unprecedented may be applied, it certainly is not accurate in um, reflecting on what is going to happen and what's happened in the past. And in both of those previous incidents, they were Democrats who had objected to the um, Electoral College. So we're going to continue our discussion of what to uh, expect tomorrow with the Electoral College vote count. When we return, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about uh, tomorrow's joint session of Congress in which the Electoral College certification process will begin. So how does this whole thing work? It is the final stage of the election process. What happens as part of the Electoral College is each state submits their electors and certified election to the United States Congress. Then the Congress counts the votes. The law governing that uh, process allows for one senator and one member of the House of Representatives together to object to the counting of one state's slate of electors in writing, which, of course, we will see tomorrow. And such an objection occurs. Then what pre, uh, proceeds is a debate for two hours in both chambers, a two-hour debate in the House, a two-hour debate in the Senate, followed by a vote on whether or not Congress should count that state's electors. It turns out uh, that's what's going to take place on Wednesday, at least one, but in this case, uh, the case of the House, 140 or so, and in the case of the Senate, upwards of 12 or so members have said that they will object to the counting of electors from six of those states. So on Wednesday, when Congress goes to count these electoral college votes, those objections will be made. Then the debate and the vote in the respective chambers will take place. This is obviously related to the allegations of fraud and irregularities in the six contested states in the 2020 election. Now, one other thing to point out, uh, the debate that's going on, going to happen on Wednesday is going to be uh, consequential. Those that are making these objections are going to be given a chance to make their case, to present the evidence, and to make a compelling case that the fraud in this election did change the outcome. And those who believe it didn't will be able to make their case. Uh, So I think it will be a process that has a certain amount of value. Then also, it's a finite process. When it's over, it will conclude Congress will certify some electors. Someone will uh, will be sworn in as president on the 20th of January. So there is some finality 
uh, that will come uh, at the end of this entire process. Now, the Washington Post has called Congress voting to certify the Electoral College vote a formality. And the question is, is it a formality or is it more than that? Again, I'm using the word consequential to describe this week in Congress and certainly tomorrow. Well, it is a formal um, process, but it's also very consequential. The Electoral College uh, didn't happen until Congress certifies the vote. So it's very important uh, in the process of certifying the next president of the United States. Now, perhaps the Washington Post thinks that the outcome is a foregone conclusion, and that's what they meant. But I think there are a significant number of Americans who've lost their faith in our election system and a significant amount of members of the House and the Senate that want to air their concerns, that want to examine these allegations. So what's going to take place on Wednesday is really important. Of course, one outcome is likely to take place, but that doesn't mean that uh, it is a formality or a foregone conclusion. I think the counting of the votes is a really important step in the process. And for future elections, if there are legitimate uh, uh, questions about how elections were conducted in particular states, those things should be addressed, whether or not the outcome in this election is changed in any way. This is a review of the record. Congress isn't actually counting. There's not a physical counting that takes place in uh, Washington in this joint session. Uh, You can think of it as these uh, certifications and records that have been submitted by mail actually to the United States Congress. And you can think of it as those uh, envelopes being opened and counted. It isn't as if uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is going to uh, use his finger and, you know, kind of go through all of the votes singularly to reach 270, but this is the way the Electoral College vote becomes official. Um, And again, this is what we're going to see tomorrow, 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time in a joint session of Congress. Meanwhile, Republican state senators in Georgia started a push on Monday to delay the January 6th counting of electoral votes. At least a dozen have signed a letter directed by Vice President Mike Pence, Pence rather, directed to the vice president, asking him to officially delay the count, and the number is still growing. There are about 16 to 18 of us now that signed this letter to the vice president asking him to delay the electoral vote for 10 to 12 days. That's a quote from Senator Brandon Beach. Uh, speaking to the Epic Times, we were going to get it to him tomorrow morning. I believe that um, is this morning, adding that more senators might still sign on. Uh, well, this state lawmaker says that he is concerned about the integrity of the election. People are saying, yeah, there is something here. There's something that just doesn't pass the smell test, that there was uh, some irregularity. There are some improprieties going on in the voting process. So here you have state lawmakers in the state of Georgia requesting that this whole process be delayed. My guess is it will not be delayed, but nonetheless, the request has been made. Now, another thing that we're hearing is uh, a request for an audit of the presidential election. Now, in a move that isn't without precedent, uh, precedent rather, 11 Senate Republicans, they're pushing for a special panel to investigate questions of fraud arising from the presidential election. Does that require postponing the uh, certification of the electoral votes? What, what does that require? Well, some conservatives oppose this objection to the election outcome in which former Vice President Joe Biden Uh, The Democrat nominee claimed an Electoral College victory of 306 over Donald Trump's 232. Now, other Republican lawmakers who are Trump's allies haven't indicated how they're going to vote uh, when the joint session of Congress convenes. But with objections from members of both the House and the Senate, the two chambers are required by law to adjourn the joint session and separately debate the objections, as I've explained earlier. And what they're uh, asking for is an audit of the presidential election. 
A few things to consider. Could an electoral commission overturn the results? Now, whether the commission would turn the tide in favor of Trump is a big question that isn't answered by the Republicans asking for the panel. The joint statement from these 11 GOP senators says Congress should immediately appoint an electoral commission with full investigatory and fact-finding authority to conduct an emergency 10-day audit of election results in the disputed states. Well, in the long shot chance that Congress votes to establish the commission, which I predict it will not, the earliest it could wrap up a 10-day audit would be just four days before the January 20th audit. Well, under their proposal, the findings of the commission would go back to the states, and the senator said once completed, individual states would evaluate the commission's findings and could convene a special legislative session to certify a change in their vote if needed. Accordingly, we intend to vote on January 6th to reject the electors from disputed states as not regularly given and lawfully certified unless and until that emergency 10-day audit is complete. So it would, in a sense, postpone a final certification. Well, is this uncharted territory? Well, as with uh, many events politicians and pundits call unprecedented, hardly, uh, highly overused, there is precedent all around. Again, in 1969 and 2005, objections from House and Senate members forced both chambers to debate separately how the Electoral College votes would be um, awarded. Rather, And what's the likelihood of an audit being done? Well, even proponents concede that an Electoral Commission to investigate the 2020 election is not likely to happen. We're not naive, says um, uh, some uh, Senator Cruz and other senators in their joint statement, we're not naive. We fully expect most, if not all Democrats, and perhaps more than a few Republicans to vote otherwise. But support of election integrity should not be as part should not be a partisan issue. They go on to say a fair and credible audit conducted expeditiously and completed well before January 20th would dramatically improve Americans' faith in our electoral process and would significantly enhance the legitimacy of whoever becomes our next president. We owe that to the people. Again, it is a long shot, but very likely uh, will be debated tomorrow and settled tomorrow as well. Meanwhile, hundreds of National Guard troops are being deployed in Washington, D.C. in anticipation of potential protests and rioting in response to Congress's forthcoming vote to affirm President-elect Joe Biden. After Mayor Muriel Bowser of, uh, on New Year's Eve requested assistance from the Guard on the streets from the 5th to the 7th of January, 340 National Guard troops will be activated, according to the Associated Press. A joint session of Congress will meet Wednesday to tally the Electoral College vote. A long and contentious session will ensue. A Defense Department official told the outlet that uh, there will be some 115 Guard troops on duty at any one time, will conduct traffic control and crowd management, as well as to stand with district police officers at the city's metro stops. However, they will not be armed or wearing body armor. The mayor says on Monday, asking people to keep away from the downtown area in D.C. and to avoid conflicts with anyone who is looking for a fight. We will not allow people to incite violence, intimidate our residents or cause destruction in our city. Oh, so they're trying something new, apparently. Acting Police Chief Robert Conti warned that some of our intelligence suggests there will be increased crowd sizes. There are people intent on coming to our city armed. There will be no active duty military troops in the city, and the U.S. military will not be providing any aircraft or intelligence, the defense official said. So this is a a sobering moment as uh, decisions will be made tomorrow in a joint session of Congress. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show, our first live broadcast of 2021. Well, 2020 is now an image in the rearview mirror, although its impact on so much of life remains. And I thought it might be healthy to consider what was so great about 2020 as we look ahead and look back just a bit. Well, it was a year ago. Um, there was an, uh, a piece that was written, um, What's So Great About the 2010s? Uh, it was the first decade of the 21st century. Um, for all its sorrows, it had been the best time to be alive, it was argued in that, uh, in that column. Then came 2020. Well, the past 12 months brought misery, turmoil, distress on a scale that most Americans couldn't have imagined last New Year's Eve. The emergence of the coronavirus, a torrent of sickness and death, economic and social lockdowns, a tidal wave of racial protests, frightening riots, a poisonous election campaign, catastrophic wildfires, a nationwide shutdown of sports, concerts, theaters, millions of lost jobs. And it hasn't literally been the worst year ever, as Time magazine labeled it. It has certainly been the worst that millions of people have known in this lifetime. But it's also been a year of good news and glad tidings, too. And while 2020 was overloaded with stress and sadness, it also supplied reasons to be grateful and milestones to celebrate. And I wanted to share just a few of them as we considered how challenging 2020 was and the challenges we may face in this new year. And now we can face them with confidence and hope. Well, there was news that the world yearned for all year. Two COVID-19 vaccines were developed and brought to market. Before 2020, it took an average of 10 years to create a new vaccine, test it for safety and efficacy, and manufacture it for public use. But this year, due in part to the technology of messenger RNA, or mRNA, is accomplished in a matter of months, an achievement that marked the start of what is already being called a golden age of vaccinology. We're going to talk a bit about vaccines later this week, I'm hoping with the, uh, the founder of the Pastors Network, some questions we might want to ask ourselves, but I digress. Africa was declared free of wild polio, a disease that until recently still infected thousands of young children every year, paralyzing for life those it didn't kill. In August, the World Trade Organization, or rather the World Health Organization, proclaimed a public health triumph, announcing the final remaining strain of wild polio virus had been eradicated in Nigeria, the last country on earth, reported a case of the disease. One response to all the lockdowns and restrictions on socializing was the uh, turbocharged rise in rescues and adoptions of animals. And while this isn't my thing, and sure it is for many of you, shelters, nonprofit rescues, private breeders, pet stores all reported more consumer demand than there were dogs and puppies to fill it. The Washington Post says that that was happy news, not just for the animals, but for their new humans. Research shows that caring for pets tends to lower blood pressure, uh, increase cardiovascular health, and reduce anxiety, unless, of course, you're terrified of dogs, in which case it increases blood pressure, increases cardiovascular uh, danger, and uh, increases anxiety. Now, my big question is, once the lockdowns have ended, are people going to care for those pets? They had all the time in the world to care for uh, during the lockdown. Well, in the space of a few months, four Muslim countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, all agreed to normalize relations with Israel after decades in which the Arab-Israeli standoff had seemed frozen in old hostilities. The sudden surge of peacemaking generated a level of hopeful excitement and joy that no one had been expecting in the Middle East a year earlier. Now, there would have been much more jubilation if Donald Trump had not been the president and the press had actually spent time focusing on it, but there you have it. 
The politics of 2020 were, well, atrocious, and the U.S. election campaign was a polarizing and toxic event, as much uh, so as any in living memory. Yet, when all was said and done, Americans demonstrated that their commitment to democratic self-government was as unwavering as ever. When the election finally arrived, 21 million more Americans cast ballots than had done so in 2016. In the past four years, America's population grew by 7.5 million. The increase in voter turnout was triple that. Now, while I think that's reason for rejoicing, I think it also raises some troubling questions, which we won't get into now. In fact, you'll hear some of those questions raised tomorrow in the joint session of Congress. Also in July, NASA launched a rocket carrying the nuclear-powered Perseverance. It's the most advanced Mars rover ever built. Perseverance is designed to search for signs of ancient life on the red planet and to extract oxygen from the Martian atmosphere. Even more ambitious, it's going to fly a helicopter. In um, another milestone, 2020 was the year that NASA successfully landed a spacecraft on an asteroid. Equally impressive were the accomplishments of a private American company, Elon Musk's SpaceX, twice flew astronauts to the International Space Station, marking the dawn of commercial human spacecraft. I'm going to pause and give you an opportunity to hum the melody of Star Trek. Charitable giving soared in 2020. Despite our economic downturn, America's American rather has always been a remarkable philanthropic society. But in this terrible year, donors gave even more generously than usual. In the first six months of the pandemic, gifts to charity increased by nearly 7.5 percent over the same period a year earlier. As lockdowns deprived millions of Americans of their regular income, millions of others stepped forward to help supplying money, food, services, and support of all kinds to people in need. One other blessing of 2020, a heightened awareness of and appreciation for countless workers whom it had been so easy to overlook before. The delivery drivers, and supermarket employees, postal clerks, transit operators, sanitation workers, hospital orderlies who kept doing their jobs even as the world went into meltdown. We finally learned to think of them as essential workers and to applaud and give thanks for what they do every day. I would add to that, that despite all of the machinations of the world we live in, the God of the universe kept every promise that he made in 2020, every work that he started in the life of a believer. He has continued to move forward, to complete. The promise that he made that he would never leave or forsake us in the midst of even trying circumstances was kept. Not one of his servants, one of his children was abandoned by the God of the universe. And the promise that his son would return to set things right, that promise still stands as reliable, truthful, inevitable, and certain. So I don't know about you, but looking back at 2020, I am assured that in 2021, the God of the universe and his son in whom I have put my trust can be relied upon to carry us through this year with troubles we may not even yet imagine and provide the needs of those who are servants of his, not only to meet their personal and familial needs, but to give us the grace, the strength, the compassion, the desire to extend the love of Jesus into the culture he has placed us in at the time that he has chosen to give us life. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the future, despite the challenges that we still face in 2021. The glass wasn't half full in 2020, but it certainly wasn't empty. May we hear more glad tidings in 2021 and look hard and deep and long for those things. 
uh, that we can cling to to bring us joy. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow for the Georgine Rice Show live in 2021. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.